Section 29 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Section 29. Selected Works. By Prosper Joliot-Crébillon. Prosper Joliot-Crébillon. 1674-1762. By Robert Sanderson. Prosper Joliot, tragic poet, called de Crébillon from the name of the estate his father purchased near Dijon, France, was born in that city January 13, 1674. The elder Joliot held an office in the magistracy of the province of Burgundy, and they intended that his son should follow in his footsteps. This the young man did for a time. He was admitted to the bar as advocate to the Parliament of Paris, and at the same time entered the office of a procurer, prosecuting magistrate, there to study the forms of procedure and practice of law. This procurer, whose name was Prieur, seems to have worked as a decisive influence over Joliot's career, as he was the first to discover in the young man strong aptitudes for tragedy. Being a man of letters, he was struck by the correctness of his clerk's criticisms of some of the French tragic poets, and urged him to try his hand at writing a tragedy himself. This Crébillon did at once, and composed his maiden play, La Morte des Enfants de Brute, The Death of Brutus's Children, a subject more than once treated before. The king's troop of players refused it, and it was not even printed. Crébillon was greatly disappointed, but encouraged by the good prior, he very soon conceived and wrote another tragedy, Idiomene, 1705, which this time was received and played with some success. Idiomene was followed by Atri et Thiesti, 1707, a play that put Crebion in the very first rank of tragic poets. Called back to his native place by his father's death, and detained there a long time by a family lawsuit, he brought back from the country his third tragedy, Electra, 1708, which was as much admired as the preceding one. Radamiste et Zenobi, Crebion's masterpiece, appeared in 1711. It formed part of the repertoire of the Comédie Française, up to the year 1829. Xerxes, played in 1714, met with flat failure. Semiramis, 1717, fared somewhat better. Disgusted with the poor success of his last two tragedies, it was nine years before Crebillon wrote again for the stage. Pyrrhus appeared in 1726 and remained for a long time on the playbills. Of his last two tragedies, Catalina, 1748, was for its author a renewal of success, whilst Le Trumbiat, written by Crebillon in his 80th year, contains here and there fine passages. Crebillon was elected to the French Academy in 1731. He held several offices during life. He was first receiver of fines, then royal censor, and lastly king's librarian. But neither from these various employments, nor from his plays, that he derived much profit. The most prosperous epoch of his existence seems to have been about the year 1715, during the brilliant but corrupt time of the Régence, 
part of his life was spent in actual penury, and we find him fifteen years later living in a poor quarter of the capital, having for sole companions of his misery a lot of dogs and cats that he picked up in the streets. However, Louis the Fifteenth gave him in his old age a proof of his royal favor. After the representation of Catalina, the king ordered that the poet's complete works be printed at his expense. The edition appeared in 1750, and yielded enough to save Crebillon at least from actual want during his remaining lifetime. It may be easily imagined that in his position of royal censor, he incurred the enmity of his colleagues whose plays he refused, and in addition to his pecuniary embarrassments, his life was embittered by the attacks of his enemies, among whom Voltaire was not the least conspicuous. Crebillon, who was a man of fine presence and strong constitution, died on June 14, 1762, in his 89th year. Taking the writer's tragedies as they appeared, Idiomene, the first one, is borrowed from Homer's Iliad. It is the story of Idomeneus, king of Crete, who, returning from the siege of Troy, and being assailed by a frightful tempest, took a vow of sacrificing to Neptune, the first human creature he should meet on landing. His own son, Idomantus, was the first person he encountered, and his father once sacrificed him. Such is the Greek legend. But it being too atrocious in its nature to suit modern taste, in Crebillon's tragedy, Idomantus kills himself. We can, in a measure, understand the terrible struggle going on in the father's breast, obliged by his vow to kill his own child. But only in a measure, for our modern ideas will not admit that under such circumstances a parent should be held to his vow. Nor does it help matters that Idomantus should kill himself to save his father from committing the atrocious deed. The subject is repulsive. The speech of Idomeneus in the first act, recounting the storm scene, is not unfrequently mentioned as a piece of rhetoric. Atri et Thiesti is far superior to Idomene, both in conception and construction. If the object of tragedy is to excite terror, that condition is certainly fulfilled in Atri et Thiesti. The subject, taken from Seneca, is well known. Atreus, king of Argos, to avenge the wrong done him by his own brother, Thyestes, who had carried off his wife, had the latter's son killed and served to him at a feast. Crebillon carries this fierce cruelty even farther, for in his play he makes Atreus offer his brother a cup filled with the blood of Philistine, son of Thyestes. On being criticized for this refinement of cruelty, the poet bluntly answered, I never should have believed that in a land where there are so many unfortunate husbands, Atreus would have found so few partisans. The strongest scenes are the closing ones, although the general opinion at the time was that Crebillon had chosen too horrible a subject. He revealed his power as a tragic poet, and his reputation as such really dates from the production of Atri et Thiesti. Crebillon's Electra is, in the main, the same as that of Sophocles, Euripides, and others. Electra, whose father Agamemnon has been murdered by Aegisthus, induces her brother Orestes to slay the murderer. The change introduced into the plot by the French poet is this one. He makes Electra love the son of her father's slayer, while Orestes, who is ignorant of his own birth, loves the daughter. The admirers of the classic models were up in arms at these changes, and Electra was attacked on all sides. But if it had its defects, 
it had also its merits, and these were finally recognized as being of high order. The scene between Clytemnestra and Electra in the first act, the meeting between Electra and Orestes, and the latter's ravings when he discovers that he has killed his mother, are among the best. Rodomisti et Zenobi is generally considered Crebion's masterpiece. It is the only one of his tragedies that contains the romantic element. As narrated in Tacitus, the legend upon which this play is founded runs thus. Rodomistus, son of Pherosmenes, king of Iberia, had married his cousin Zenobia, daughter of his uncle Mithridates, king of Armenia. The latter was put to death by order of Rodomistus, who took possession of his uncle's provinces. An insurrection broke out, and Rodomistus had to flee for his life. He carried off Zenobia with him, but she, owing to her condition, unable to bear the fatigues of the flight, begged her husband to put her to death. After piercing her with his sword and throwing her into the Araxes, he hurriedly made off for his father's kingdom. Zenobia, however, was not dead. She was found on the bank of the river by some shepherds, who carried her to the court of the king Tiridates, who received her kindly and treated her as a queen. In his tragedy, Crebion makes the husband and wife meet again at the court of Pharasmanes. And Zenobia, believing herself to be a widow, shows her love for Prince Aramis, own brother to Rhadamistus. This invention is certainly no more improbable than the whole story itself. The interview between Pharasmanes and his son in the second act, and the meeting between Rhadamistus and Zenobia in the third, are both remarkable, the first for its grandeur, the second for its pathos and passion. Xerxes is an inferior tragedy. The strongest character in the play is that of the Prime Minister Artaban, who sows discord between the two sons of Xerxes, intending to seize the throne of Persia for himself. Inferior also is Semiramis. The famous queen is in love with Agenor, who proves to be her own son Ninius. But even after this discovery, Semiramis perseveres in her passion. Such a subject can be tolerated on the stage only on condition that the spectator be made to feel the victim's struggle and remorse, as in Racine's Phaedra. Pyrrhus differs from Crebillon's previous tragedies in this one point. No blood is spilled upon the stage. The poet does not rely upon his usual method of striking terror to gain success. For the first time his characters are heroic and express noble sentiments. Pyrrhus, king of Epirus, has been brought up by his guardian, Glossius, under the name of Helenus, and believes himself to be his son. It is only when the usurper, Neoptolemes, demands of Glossus, the surrender of Pyrrhus, that the latter discovers the truth. The courage and magnanimity of Glossus in refusing to give up his trust, of his son Illyrius in taking the place of Pyrrhus, of Pyrrhus in revealing his true name and offering himself to the usurper, and lastly, of Neoptolemes in showing clemency, are worthy of admiration. Twenty-two years intervene between Pyrrhus and Catalina, 1748, as might be expected in a tragedy having for its principal characters Cicero and Cato, political speeches are plentiful. The scene between Catiline, Cato, and Cicero in the fourth act is perhaps the strongest. Another interval of six years, and Crebillon wrote his last tragedy, Le Triumvirat, or Le Mort de Ciceron which may be termed a rehabilitation of Cicero, who, the critics said, should not have been made a subordinate character to that of Catiline, 
in Crebillon's previous tragedy. Although written in his 80th year, it cannot be said that this compensation shows any sign of mental decay. But two such masters as Corneille and Racine, towering with their mighty height over all other French dramatic poets, it is often difficult to be just towards the latter. They must always suffer by comparison, yet all they wrote did not deserve almost entire oblivion. In the case of Crebillon, the only tragedy by which he is now remembered is that of Radamiste et Zenobi, and that principally because it is the only one that has in it an element of romance. But his others concern also qualities of their own, grandeur of conception, great force and energy, together with a severe and sober language. As to his defects, they consist in too great a predilection for the horrible, and in a style which at times is inflated. Voltaire, who could brook no superiority or even equality in any line of literature, did not spare Crebillon his sarcasms. The best outcome of this rivalry between the two poets was the emulation it stimulated in Voltaire, causing him to write over five of Crebillon's tragedies, Semiramis, Electra Catalina, Le Triumvirat, Etri et Thiesti, under respective names of Semiramis, Oresti, Rome Sauve, Le Triumvirat, Le Pelopides. Selections from the Tragedies of Crebillon. The Bloody Banquet from Atreus and Thyestes. Atreus. Now in this cup, the pledge of brotherhood, behold the sacred earnest of our peace. How timely has it come to still the fears that bid thee doubt a brother's bounteous love. If dark distrust of Atreus lingers still within thy heart, give me the sacred cup, that shame may fill Thyestes to withhold his share in this fraternal festival, that brothers' hearts, whom love hath set at twain, love's holy bonds may reunite again. Give me the cup, that I, in drinking first, may drown thy doubts. Eurysthenes, the cup. He takes the cup from the hand of Eurysthenes, his confidant. Thyestes. Have I not said, my lord, thou takest ill my groundless doubts and coward quavering fears? What henceforth could thy hate deprive me of, since sun and provinces have been restored? Whatever the cause and meaning of this wrath, have I deserved that thou shouldst crown my days, my wretched days, with kindness such as this? Nay. First, Eurysthenes, give me the cup. Let me be first to pledge all gratitude, and drown my heart's misgivings, that have lain like bitter lees within the cup I drain. He takes the cup from the hand of Atreus, saying, Yet why delays my son? Atreus, addressing his guards, Give answer, guards. Has he not yet returned? Addressing Thyestes, Be not uneasy. You shall soon see him. Soon to him be joined more near and close your union than you dream, most sacred pledge, he of our solemn bond. Thyestes. Be thou the voucher, then, of Atreus's faith, and of Thyestes' safety from his hate. Cup of our ancestors, and you, ye gods, whom I to witness call, may you strike dead with swift avenging thunderbolt of wrath, him who first breaks this pact of peace. And thou, brother, as dear as daughter or as son, receive this proof of firmest faith. 
He drains the cup and recoils. Ah, wretch! What do I see? Great gods, tis blood! 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 Ah, horror! Blood! Mine own runs cold within my frozen heart, my heart with horror chilled. The sun grows dim around me, and the cup dyed with such dreadful crimson seems to shrink from touch of this my trembling hand. I die. Tis death I feel upon me. Oh, my son, what has become of thee? Turning to Atreus, My son is dead. My son is dead, thou cruel one, who offerest false promises of peace to me. Bereave it in the same instant, which has snatched him from me. And lest this frightful blow should leave me living. Monster! Tis wine of blood thy hand is giving. O earth, canst thou support us at this moment? My dream, my ghastly dream, returned upon me. Was it thy blood, my son, they gave thy father? Atreus. And canst thou recognize this blood? Thyestes. My brother I recognize. Atreus. Thou shouldst have recognized him and known his nature in the past, nor wronged him and forced him in great, thus to hurl his vengeance. Thyestes. O mighty gods, what crimes are ye avenging? Thou fiend spewed forth by hell to blight the earth. More fully spin the rage that fills thy breast. Send an unhappy father to his son. Give this new victim to his bloody manes. Nor stop halfway in thy vile path of crime. How canst thou spare me, barbarous wretch, To mourn within a world whence thou hast driven away The gods and even the wholesome light of day? Atreus Nay, I should wish thee back again to life, Which I can stuff so bravely with disasters. I know thy grief, I hear it in thy moans. I see thy sorrows wound thee as I wished, And in thy tears I find fulfilled the hope that fast was fading in my heart. Revenge! Thou callest on death, and I have left thee life. Tis my revenge. Thyestes, ah, vain and flattering hope, Thyestes' hand can rob thee of that joy. He kills himself. Theodamia, daughter of Thyestes. Ah, heaven! Thyestes, be thou comforted, my daughter. Hence and leave justice to the most high gods, whose hearts your tears will move. Hence and await his punishment, whose perjuries turn pale the very gods themselves. They promise it. Tis pledged me in this bloody cup, and now, just gods, I die. Atreus, and I accept the omen. For thy self-slaying hand hath crowned my wishes, And I enjoy at last my crime's full fruitage. Mother and Daughter From Electra Clytemnestra So, far from answering a mother's kindness, Thou heaps defiance on that sacred name, And when my pity seeks her happiness, Electra scorns me still. Ay, ay, defy me, proud princess, unrelenting, but accuse none save thyself, that fate so frowns on thee. From a great monarch, jealous of his power, I won a hero husband for my daughter, and hasty hope has shown me the scepter within our house once more, 
bought by that union, yet she, ungrateful, only seeks our ruin. But one word more. Thou holdst the hand of Itis, and this day shall see your lots united. Refuse him at thy peril, for Aegisthus is weary of the slave within his palace, whose tears move men and gods to pity. Electra. Pity? Against so proud a tyrant, O ye heavens, what weapon? Can he fear my harmless tears, who thus defies remorse? Ah, madam, mother, is it for thee to add to my misfortunes? I, I, Aegisthus' slave, alack, how comes it? Ah, hapless daughter, who such slave has made me? And say, of whom was this Electra born? And is it fitting thou shouldst so reproach me? Mother, if still that holy name can move thee, and if indeed my shame be known to all within this palace, show compassion on me, and on the griefs thy hand hath heaped upon me, speed, speed my death, and think not to unite me to him, the son of that foul murderer, that wretch whose fury robbed me of a father, and still pursues him in his son and daughter, usurping even the disposal of my hand, can't speak of such a marriage, and not shudder. Mother, that lovest me once, how have I lost it, thy tender love? Alas, I cannot hate thee, despite the sorrows that have hedged me round, the bitter tears I shed within this place. Tis only for the tyrant I invoke, the high God's wrath. Ah, if I must forget that I have lost a father, help me, madam, to still remember that I have a mother. Clytemnestra. What can I do? How act? Not save thy marriage will satisfy the king. I pray thee yield. Repine no longer at thy destined lot. And cease bewailing over a dead barbarian, who, had he found another Ilion, thyself full quickly would have made an offering upon the altar of his own ambition. Thus did he dare, O dark and cruel heart, before mine eyes to sacrifice my daughter. Electra cruel I, madam. Yet was he thy husband, if thus he purchased for him punishment, what gods or men appointed thee avenger? If heaven in extremity of harshness compelled him, hapless hero, to outpour his own blood, answer, was it not for heaven he spilled it? But thou, most unnatural mother of sorrow-scourged Electra and Orestes, thou too would spill the last drops of that blood not for high heaven, jealous of its altars, but for the vilest mortal. Ah, behold him, he comes, inhuman wretch! And at the sight, fierce passions stir within my seething soul. The Matricide from Electra Orestes Strike ye gods, ye gods all-powerful, summoned by my fury, avenging gods! If there be such, then strike! Since still I live, my crime, my hideous crime, is yours alone to reckon, yours to judge, as heaven only gentle torments for me. Alas! I see what stays your righteous vengeance. You know not how to punish crime so foul, ye horror-stricken gods. Electra. Ah, brother, brother, calm this blind frenzy. Cure thee of this madness. Have I not weight enough of grief to bear? Wouldst thou, Orestes, slay me as I stand? Orestes, hush, utter it no more. That name abhorred, 
and thou who shudderest at my odious presence. Nature, so oft, so deeply outraged here, I have avenged thee of my murdered father. But who my murdered mother shall avenge? Speak, Justice, if thine arm have lost its power. Filled with the fury of a just despair, behold myself will aid it to strike home. If man's remorse can move divinity, gods, turn ye to the tears, the blood I spill. Ha! Seest thou, mother? He tries to kill himself, but is disarmed by his guardian, Palamedes. Palamedes, O my lord! Orestes, leave, leave me, from thee I will have nothing, wretch inhuman, nor from Electra. Was it not your heart's thirsting for blood and victims that compelled me to stain my hands with guilt unspeakable? But how now, whence this mist that darkens round me? Thanks be to heaven, the way to hell is opened. Let us to hell. There's nothing that affrights me, and in the horror of eternal night hide and unwrap ourselves. But what pale light shines on me now? Who to this dark abode dares to bring daylight back? What do I see? The dead of hell looks shuddering upon me. Oh, hear the moans, the painful cries. Orestes, who calls me in this horrible retreat? It is Aegisthus, who, too much, too much, and in my wrath, but soft, what sight is here? What holds he in his hands? My mother's head. Ah, what a gaze! Where shall Orestes flee, atrocious monster? What a spectacle thou venturest to show me! Stay thy fury, behold my sufferings and that awful head. Hide, hide it from these terror-smitten eyes. Ah, mother, spare me! Spare thy unhappy son, ye shades of Agamemnon, hear my cries. Shades of mine honored father, give thine aid. Come shield thy son from the pursuing anger of Clytemnestra. Ah, show pity on me. What, even in thy protecting arms, she, furious, still pursues me. All is over. I yield me to the life-consuming torture, my guiltless heart that bore nor part nor share in the black crime committed by my hand, is torn with torments. O ye gods, what culprit of deepest guilt could bear worse punishment? The Reconciliation From Radamistus and Zenobia Zenobia My lord, a hapless woman whom fate has fastened to a tyrant's yoke, dare she appeal, disgraced in chains of bondage, to Romans, masters of the universe. Ah, yet indeed what better part to play for these same masters of the universe than to relieve my great misfortunes. Heaven, that to their august laws subjected all. Radamistus. What do I see? Ah, wretched man, those features, that voice. Just gods, what sight do ye present before mine eyes? Zenobia. How comes it that your soul, my gracious lord, so stirs at sight of me? Radamistus, had not my hand deprived of life? Zenobia, what is it I see and hear in turn? Sad recollection, I tremble, shudder. Where and what am I? My strength fast leaves me. Ah, my lord, dispel my terror and confusion. All my blood runs cold to my heart's core. Radamistus, ah, me, the passion that fills my being, Leaves no further doubt, 
hast thou my hand achieved but half thy crime victim of man's conspiring cruelty sad object of a jealous desperate love swept on by rage to fiercest violence after such storm of madness frenzy fury zenobia is it thou zenobia zenobia ah gods o radamistus thou my husband cruel but yet beloved after trials so many and so bitter is it thou radamistus can it be possible thine eyes refuse to recognize him yes i am that monster that heart inhuman yes i am that traitor that murderous husband would to highest heaven that when to-day he stood unknown before thee, forgetting him thou hadst forgot his crimes. O gods, who to my mortal grief restore her, why could ye not return to her a husband worthy herself? What happy fate befalls me that heaven, touched to pity by my torments of sharp regret, hath granted me to gaze once more upon such charms? But yet, alas, can it be too? that at my father's court I find a wife so dear weighed down with chains? Gods, have I not bewailed my crimes enow, that ye flicked my vision with the sight? O oh, all too gentle victim of despair like mine, how all I see but fills afresh the measure of thy husband's guilt! How now? Thou weepest. Zenobia, wherefore, thou unhappy being, should I not weep? in such a fateful hour. Ah, cruel one, would heaven thy hand of hatred had only sought to snatch Zenobia's life! Then would my heart, unstirred to depths of anger at sight of thee, be quickly on beholding my husband. Then would love, to honor lifted by rage of jealousy, replace thy wife within thine arms, fresh filled with happiness. Yet think not that I feel for thee no pity, or turn from thee with loathing. Radamistus Ye great gods, far from reproaches such as should overwhelm me. Is it Zenobia who fears to hate me and justifies herself? Ah, punish me rather than this, for in such fatal kindness should free forgiveness. I am made to taste of mine own cruelty. Spare not my blood, dear object of my love. Be just, deprive me of such a bliss as seeing thee again. He falls at her feet. Must I to urge thee clasp thy very knees? Remember what the price, and whose the blood, that sealed me as thy spouse. All, even my love, demands that I should perish. To leave crime unpunished is to share the culprit's guilt. Strike, but remember, in my wildest fury never wast thou cast down from thy high place within my heart. Remember, if repentance can stand for innocence, I need no longer rouse thee to hatred. Move thee to revenge. Ay, and remember, too, despite the rage, which well I know must swell within thy soul, my greatest passion was my love for thee. Zenobia. Arise, it is too much. Since I forgive thee, what profit in regrets? The gods, believe me, deny to us the power of wrecking vengeance on enemies so dear. But name the land where thou wouldst dwell, and I will follow thee whithersoever thou wilt. Speak, I am ready to follow, from this moment forth forever. Assured that such remorse as fills thy heart springs from thy virtues, more than thy misfortunes, and happy if Zenobia's love for thee could some day serve as pattern to Armenia, 
Make her like me thy willing, loyal subject. And teach her, if no more, to know her duty. Radamistus, great heaven, can it be that lawful bonds unite such virtues to so many crimes, that Hymen, to a madman's lot, should link the fairest, the most perfect of all creatures, to whom the gods gave life? Canst look upon me after a father's death, my outrages, my brother's love, that prince so great and generous, can they not make thee hate a hapless husband? And I may tell myself, since thou disdainest the proffered vows of virtuous Arsames, thou to his passion turnst a heart of ice. What words are these? Too happy might I live to-day, if duty in that noble heart might take for me the place of love. Zenobia Ah, quiet within thy soul the groundless doubts that fill it, or hide at least thy unworthy jealousy. Remember that a heart that can forgive thee is not a heart to doubt. So, Radamistus, not without crime. Radamistus, O thou dear wife, forgive me my fatal love. Forgive me those suspicions which my whole heart abhors. The more unworthy thy inhuman spouse, the less should thy displeasure visit his unjust fears. O dear Zenobia, give me thy heart and hand again, and deign to follow me this day to fair Armenia. Caesar hath o'er that province made me monarch. Come, and behold me henceforth blot my crimes from thy remembrance with a list of virtues. Come, here is Hiero, a faithful subject, whose zeal we trust to cur o'er our flight. Soon as the night is veiled the staring sky, assured that thou shalt see my face again. Come, and await me in this place. Farewell. Let us not linger till a barbarous foe, when heaven has reunited us, shall part us again forever. O ye gods who gave her back to my arms, in answer to my longings, deign, deign to give to me a heart deserving your goodness. End of section 29 Recording by Chris Pyle